Hello. I hope you'll enjoy this recording and consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, my talks are offered entirely without charge and supported by donations only. Please feel invited to stop by dharmapunksnyc.com, that's spelled with an X, to check out a chapter from my book, Unsubscribe, which arrives November 2017. And thank you. Tonight's talk is about dealing with large social gatherings. And boy, do I hate those things. <laughs> By which I mean, there are certain gatherings, whether family reunions, or work events, or weddings, my big, my most least favorite, or any large social gathering where there's an expectation that we behave within a very constrained, limited amount of, of behaviors where you're not expected, for example, to be really sad when you're at a, I don't know, a bridal shower or at a wedding, where there's expectations of how we behave that are very rigid. And then there's also large social gatherings that can be very triggering. They can activate uh, especially early f family wounds from our childhood, if we are in a place where we feel constantly evaluated, looked at in a sort of critical manner, those triggering events can also be endurance tests as well. So I'm, I have personally spent a lot of my life learning to address, as you can see by the fact that I'm sitting here in front of you, <clears throat> I have spent a lot of time in my life uh, addressing and learning how to be comfortable in social gatherings, in uh, places where especially there's a lot of people that I don't know. Very often I teach classes where, which are at least half of the people I don't know. I just, in California, I was teaching in front of like 200 people, and I didn't, I knew maybe five. And I'm going to share the tools, are both Buddhist tools and tools that have helped me become more comfortable surviving challenging social events. And if you're somebody who thrives in those kind of things where you don't find any social gatherings to be triggering, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> Hopefully, my, the sheer magnetism of my personality will be enough. I don't know. Uh, but hopefully, maybe you'll find something anyway that will be of use. Of course, all of our challenges emotionally in life almost invariably stem back either to emotionally wounding experiences and traumas, but more often to the events of our early childhoods, the relationship we had with family members and adults that were present. Given that human beings are social species, our core drive in life is not to seek food, not to achieve warmth or uh, to, as Freud uh, suggested, it's not to relieve libidinal energies. Uh, what 
has been conclusively demonstrated by the work of so many psychologists such as Fanaghi and uh, Alan Shore, Mary Main, Philip Schaefer, Mary Ainsworth, John Bowlby, uh, Leslie Greenberg, so forth, um, is that human beings, our fundamental drive is for connection, to be seen, appreciated, acknowledged, understood by others. The whole human brain, according to the evolutionary psychologist Robin Dunbar, was set up to connect with other human brains. We are a pack animal species, which means that we uh, connect not only to survive, because let's face it, none of us have shells or wings to fly away or um, uh, what do you call it, fangs or uh, venom. We are so successful as a species because we connect better than any other species. The reason why the human brain has two largely separate hemispheres is to allow us to connect both through language and through emotions. And we can do both, which are very complicated tasks at the same time. And so we start off life with this huge dependency to connect and bond. And in psychology, it's called object constancy. We seek to have a secure or an ongoing relationship with other people who will protect, see us, acknowledge us, take care of us. Especially the most important needs are to be soothed when we feel emotionally uh, upset or activated. Soothed when we feel lonely or sad or disappointed or angry or frustrated. And the other need uh, of being seen is to be appreciated, to have our hard work be acknowledged, our efforts to be seen. And, of course, in our contemporary culture, by the way, we're starving people of this very fundamental need because we are training people to connect via asynchronous means. But in other words, texting, emails, uh, Facebook posts, and so forth, are not in any way emotionally co-regulating at all. If you text something and I say, oh, that's great, all that's knowing that is your left hemisphere, but the part of your brain that really needs to be seen, appreciated, connected is the right hemisphere, and it's totally unaware that anything has happened. The only way we feel emotionally regulated is when we actually face-to-face -face connect with another human being and express, not just through words, but through emotions such as tone of voice, gestures, tears, laughter, facial expressions, body language, how we are doing, what our state of being is, and then another human being, their right hemisphere, sees and uh, acknowledges that through mirroring. They in some way mirror back the emotion. So if we're sad, they express some sadness with their face. And that is what's called emotion co-regulation. And that's what makes relationships satisfying. Uh, the great Gottman 
John Gottman, one of the, the clinical psychologists of adult relationships, found that the couples that stay together are the ones that return each other's bids for attention. So he even came up with a percentage. It's crazy, but he said, he said that if a couple respond to the, each other's bids for attention, and that can be small, like, ooh, look at this cat video, it's really cute, or I had such a hard day at work. <clears throat> if you feel there's a 75-80% likelihood that your bids will be uh, acknowledged, there's a good chance that relationship will, he found, survive for years. But if one or both don't actually feel that their bids for attention are acknowledged, then those couples he found essentially fall apart. The key mechanism is not the disagreements or the fights, it's actually the how often we feel seen by another. So we'll do anything to feel seen and acknowledged. If we have a healthy relationship with core caregivers and adults in our childhood, if our emotions are acknowledged, grief, loneliness, desire, happiness, fear, disgust, excitement, and so forth, then we, and what those emotions receive is it's called attunement. Somebody looks, takes it in, and then empathy. They mirror back and they acknowledge that they understand what your experience, then that child feels a secure base. A secure base is the most fundamentally important emotional foundation in our lives. A secure base is the sense that no matter what we experience in life, there will be someone who we can go to to express the feelings, the state of being that we're in, and that we will be uh, understood taken in, acknowledged, understood. If we get that secure base, then we feel a sense of trust. We're willing to take opportunities. We're willing to state our needs to others. We're willing to explore the world. We can relax around other people. We can self-soothe even when we're waiting to see someone. But if we experience times in our childhood where certain emotions were not allowed. In my family of first-generation Americans, my parents were very wonderful when it came to being creative. They could deal very well with sadness. But my dad was an alcoholic, um, a violent one, so I saw that violence obviously was terrifying and that I associated with anger. So I couldn't allow myself to feel any anger. I would repress it immediately. Likewise, my mother, in a kind of funny way, but still in a very judgmental way, never allowed us to be very frustrated or disappointed. If ever she did anything and we, were, we expressed any disappointment, it was sort of, she emotionally read it as a sort of judgment on her ability to assimilate in America. And uh, she, as a growing up very poor young Jewish woman in uh, the Bronx, she wanted to assimilate very deeply. So if her children expressed disappointment, it was like she was doing something wrong. So it took me years 
to allow myself to feel disappointed around others. If somebody did something that was really unsafe or frankly hurtful, and they'd start to apologize, I'd go, ah. <laughs> it's okay, it's okay. Because it, also with my dad, if he ever apologized, and it, I, I, I ever expressed anything other than it's okay, then he'd get even more angry. So if, we, if some emotions are not greeted well, uh, if we sometimes experience what's called an insecure base where emotions were received with judgment or shame or rejection, then we start to feel unsafe in the world. Uh, we try to control other people's or how other people will think about us rather than just be ourselves. We'll try to always be pleasing or we'll try to be narcissistic like our present, president. We will constantly call attention to things that we didn't actually accomplish or to just try to get attention that's positive. Some children wind up histrionic where they're always sick. There's something always wrong and that's how they get attention. Some people get attention even by being antisocial, by breaking the rules, by being the one who's the troublemaker because at least that gets them a quality of attention that they understand. So when we don't have a secure sense that there will be people there that will allow us to experience and express any emotion, then we start to repress the primary emotions that we experience and we start masking them with other emotions that we think they, other people will like. And so we start being increasingly inauthentic. And we start feeling really upset when we ever feel any of those emotions that in childhood were not acknowledged and allowed. So well into my adult life when I would feel angry, I would have to drink or take drugs. Until 22 years ago when I got sober, that was my way of dealing with anger. All emotions have a purpose. We don't have any mistaken emotions whatsoever in the sense that all emotions are meant to be there if you don't allow yourself to feel anger, then you won't be able to confront injustice and you won't be able to set boundaries. If you don't feel sad, you won't be able to process losses and disconnections. So anyway, these early experiences turn into internal working models, which are expectations of how other people will react to us. We don't, when we turn 18, just drop these behaviors, these coping strategies that we develop, such as avoidance coping, hiding our setbacks or our disappointments, concealing emotions that are not popular, deflecting our anger away from the person who harmed us, like a parent or a sibling to someone else. Um, we take all of those coping strategies with us into our adult life. There's not like we graduate from high school and they say, congratulations, all your coping strategies have now been stripped and you are going to act now as a fully empowered, confident adult with a secure base. <laughs> so um, uh, you, if we do the work, if we find a secure community uh, of people that will understand and appreciate us, 
and allow us to be authentic, either expressing the feelings that are arising without any necessary judgment, then uh, we can express our emotions without masking. We can set boundaries, tell people when they're asking us to do things that make us uncomfortable. We can state our needs in relationships. We can be forthcoming if we feel somebody's not connecting with us enough or connecting with us too much. Or we can state what our needs are without hinting, without being passive-aggressive. And we can show up for conversations that might involve conflict. If we don't feel a secure base in the world, we will not be authentic with our emotions. We will shy away from conflicts. We'll try to avoid them. We'll try to express our needs through other means, hinting, passive-aggressive means. If we do the work and we find support, a therapist or a safe community or a 12-step group, <clears throat> and we start to heal, still what will happen is we might wind up back in a large, strange social gathering or a family reunion or a work event or any situation where people are unknown or we feel observed, put on the spot. And in those challenging situations, the first impulse that will arise will always be our oldest coping strategies. Only now they're not coping, they're maladaptive. They worked in childhood, but they don't work in adult life. The child who grows up in a family where if you make mistakes, you get punished too much, will learn to hide their mistakes. They will lie. And that's how they survive. And that's totally adaptive. That's totally okay for a child who is you know, overly punished for making a mistake. The fact that they conceal mistakes is totally understandable. But if we bring that into adult life, guess what? All of our relationships will suffer if we start to essentially conceal mistakes or lie about things to feel safe in the world. So I tend to find that the environments that trigger the people I work with in counseling and the people that I teach and my, even myself are situations where I, there's, somebody has power over me. Uh, that's very rare. As a Buddhist teacher, virtually nobody but uh, my teacher Noah has any, uh, I feel, any sense of authority over me. But uh, unfamiliar environments, uh, going to situations again like large ceremonial events where you're expected to be a certain narrow range of behaviors. And generally the first things that will arise is we will feel our old coping strategies shutting down, putting on a completely insincere, people-pleasing, external social mask. Uh, some people to survive, like I did, will self-numb through alcohol or drugs. Some people will fantasize escaping, or if they feel they're going back to a family gathering where somebody has been unfair in the past and they feel that it has not been acknowledged, they'll punish the person in their head. They'll think cutting remarks, but they won't actually say it, and so they wind up being obsessive and overly fixated. So anyway, 
Now let's go to the solutions. And for only 19.95. No. I'm <laughs> so here's a list of about six. You'll probably only be able to remember two or three. That's okay because I'm going to post the talk, and you can either listen to it again or I can also put up on the the list the just the basic summary of the tools on the podcast if you want to hear it again. So the first most important, well, not the most important, but a very worthwhile tool is um, practice saying no. Practice declining invitations. It's actually worthwhile to show yourself that you're no longer the child stuck in the family system where you're unable to say no where you have to say yes to every single invitation, whether it's at work or to every single work event, or whether uh, in, in some kind of arena of life you feel this obligation to always show up or to always say yes, even though you really don't want to, it's worthwhile now and again to decline invitations so that you don't feel trapped that you feel a sense of agency, a sense that you're not actually forced, but that you've actually consented or actually agreed to do it. That's very important. Children wind up with their mal the coping strategies that they do because they can't leave their families. The child can't say, well, I hear you about wanting to do Thanksgiving again this year, but last year you got drunk and I felt very unsafe and you invited our aunt, who you know is very difficult for me, and so I think I'll be bowing out of this one. I'll be at an Airbnb and we'll reconnect for Christmas maybe. As an adult, you are actually allowed to set boundaries and set guidelines, which means to not always feel compelled to, and when you feel compelled, then you feel trapped, then old coping strategies, and those will always be the first to arise. This brings me to my second key tool, which is responding versus reacting. Uh, the first tool that will always arrive in a challenging situation where we feel criticized, unacknowledged, uncared about, unseen, uh, uh, unappreciated, uh, ignored, and so forth, is the oldest coping strategies. We'll feel that impulse to either hide or conceal the emotions or we'll feel the impulse to, uh, in our head, develop resentments to people who are acknowledged or we will feel um, an impulse to just leave, to run away. We will uh, feel the oldest impulses that we did as children when we in our family systems we felt overly criticized and not seen. So the key is to pause and wait for at least a second and a third 
way to respond comes up. In the human mind, the order of responses always follows the exact same hierarchy of human development. So the first impulse to fight, flee, disappear, dissociate is always the oldest. And then the next will be from maybe teenage years. Oh, I, maybe if I just smoke some pot, I'll be okay. And then maybe from college years, maybe if I hook up and have a lot of sex, that will solve all of this. And then ascent, you get the idea. We have to wait. Pause. Don't respond, but don't repress the feelings either. And don't just try to bury and not state needs, but literally wait until you have choices. The more choices, eventually choices that stem from adaptive support groups and the way you learn to act in environments where you are less frightened, hopefully will rise. Also, I have to say that the longer we pause when people say something that's judgmental, critical, or just uh, downright stupid, um, just pausing for a moment is the most cutting way to respond. <laughs> my sister was a master at this, and some of the fa my favorite moments of my childhood is when my dad, in you know, on the second bottle of wine at dinner, would start to say something insane. My sister would just look at him and just allow his words to hang there like fetid turds in the air. <laughs> and you would see, even in his drunkenness, he would begin to get uncomfortable. And she would never have to say anything. She just would look at him. And then after a while, she would say, I don't know how she got this mature so young. She, even at like 12 or 13, she would say uh, something like, so are you glad you said that? <laughs> Amazing. Amazing stuff. It's the best retort I still have ever heard. <laughs> uh, the third is Kaganusati, the Buddha's tool of essentially the part of the brain that activates feeling insecure and security is called the limbic structure. And the most fundamentally important region of that brain is the amygdala, which is the brain's Essentially, it's fire alarm, the alarm system that says we're under attack, we're not safe. When the amygdala goes off, it changes the way we breathe, it tightens the body, contracts muscles, and then we stop thinking intelligently. It shuts off the dorsolateral, and we just go into fight, flight, or freeze reactions. So if you want to be able to respond rather than react, the key to it is to relax the shoulders, soften the chest, soften the belly, and breathe out very long. Now this is the most scientific advice I can actually give you. The world's most, uh, one of the most esteemed neuroscientists, Joseph Ledoux of NYU, uh, gave an interview recently, he's considered to be the neuroscientist of fear and anxiety. And they asked him, after he talked about the different neural structures that create fear, they said, well, what can you do when you feel <coughs> frightened or anxious or unsafe? He said, 
The only thing I know to do is relax your body and breathe. Because the parts of the brain that activate uh, fear, insecurity, distress, don't have any languaging processing at all. There's absolutely no language parts of your brain, the, of that part of the brain, uh, the limbic structures. But the limbic structures do understand body language. If you relax your body and soften your belly, open up your chest, and long exhalations, it deactivates the amygdala. Also, if you use soothing tones to yourself, May I be happy, may I be safe. The words won't be understood, but the tone of voice will activate a feeling of security. It's the same voice that your mother or father or safe caregiver used when you were distressed and they tried to soothe you. If you use that voice with yourself, it will deactivate and will make you feel more secure. When you feel more secure, you can actually set boundaries, step up for yourself, be less uncomfortable in social gatherings. Uh, here's a big one. Acknowledge the unspoken event or the unacknowledged. What this means is uh, in virtually every family system I know of, there's what's called the elephant in the room. Or some people call it the gorilla in the room. They're wrong. It's the elephant in the room. Uh, the elephant in the room is the big event that has happened in the past that nobody wants to acknowledge, so it just sits there. This big presence, like the last time we were together, there was this big fight, or somebody got so drunk they fell over, or somebody screamed, or there was this big, huge, unsafe event. And now everybody tries to work around it by not acknowledging it. That doesn't work. <coughs> Again, to Gottman, he found that couples and family systems that do not acknowledge uh, emotionally resonant events are the first families and relationships to fall apart. It becomes like a kind of pollution. The unexpoken, unacknowledged seeps everywhere, and it comes out then in passive-aggressive statements that we're unaware, where we punish each other for past events rather than simply acknowledging it and expressing how we felt and then putting it forth. Gottman found that couples who all the time work through conflicts, all the time try to deal with it, are not that healthy but even more unhealthy are the couples that don't acknowledge. He found that if couples set aside a time to acknowledge, address how they felt, and then move on, then those are the healthiest ways to deal with previously emotionally painful events. So the best way is when you get to a gathering, uh, what I say, and I found it to be vastly healing, and it actually allows other people to address as I will say, oh, you know, I'm glad to be here. Last time wasn't so much fun. <laughs> but, you know, I really wanted to show up. And so, you know, knowing that 
Uh, it, sometimes it's difficult, but, you know, I just wanted to acknowledge that. And then other people say how they felt and moves along. There is in my family, extended family system, there's been some dramas that happened in the last year, and I will, I'm planning to acknowledge it. So, um, knowing that our oldest emotional beliefs are expectations very often on not getting our needs met or feeling trapped or feeling judged or feeling criticized, whatever our emotional expectations are, it's worthwhile to, when you get to a place, ground yourself by acknowledging all the places and the resources that you have as an adult that you didn't have as a child. For me, that first thing is reminding myself that I can leave whenever I want. I remind myself there's such a thing today called lift. <laughs> it's actually, people who live today are, have something that I did not have as a teenager, and I would have loved that if there was lift, where you simply have a little app, and for a few bucks, you share a car ride with other people, and then you wind up home. <laughs> you know, literally, when I was... Uh, in college, my friends and I used to joke that at family gatherings, we wished there, there was a service called Take Me Back to Where I Live Now, where you could just push a button and people would come like in an ambulance and put you in like this, like, you know, gurney and whisk you back to your apartment so that you didn't have to deal. But we actually all have that now. And finally, stating needs and setting boundaries. Don't put that off in life. State what you need to feel safe and set boundaries to make you safe. That means in gatherings, know which topics you don't want to talk about. And when somebody brings them up, just simply say, I don't want to talk about that. Make certain topics off limits. My father and I had a wonderfully close relationship towards the end of his life. This was a man who would not only beat me, but beat my mother in front of me, who was seriously unsafe. But we did lots of therapy together. And still, at the end of his life, he could be pretty judgmental whenever it came to what I was doing. And I didn't have any bad jobs. I actually was an art director for a long time in an ad in the advertising it wasn't like you know something to be embarrassed about but um, no matter what he would always it wasn't enough for him so I very quickly learned to simply say when he'd start to bring up what's going on at your job I would say I'm not talking about that we can talk about anything you want but what I do for limit well for work is off limits so Again, just to summarize, saying no now and then to events, responding rather than reacting, waiting for the mature or the more, waiting until you know what the safe, secure, unafraid person would do. Don't do the first impulse. Relaxing the breath and the body, looking for signs of safety, acknowledging the unspoken or the unacknowledged, and establishing boundaries. So we're going to actually work on a few of those in our meditation. So, <clears throat> find a really comfortable seated position. So, 
closing the eyes and just take a moment to tilt your head slightly a little bit back like you're looking at a tall building while uh, whatever feels comfortable that will help your head from slouching in front of your body and when you slouch it hurts your neck makes it more difficult to feel relaxed it's easier if you keep a balance so if your head feels aligned with your shoulders and your shoulders feel aligned with your hips So we'll actually start by doing the 60-second quick relax technique that will help you at any social gathering. So take a nice, full, complete in-breath through your nose, and as you do that, lift your shoulders up like you're trying to... And hold your breath for a little while. Just keep the shoulders up like you're trying to touch your ears. And then breathe out through the mouth. And drop the shoulders. And if it feels like they weigh two tons, and if it feels right for your body, gently pull your shoulders back, which opens up your chest. And that actually helps you feel more secure and safe. It uses the vagal vagus nerve to tell the part of your brain that monitors your security that you're okay and then for the second in-breath pull in the belly really tight just hold it in and then breathe out through the mouth and again if your belly is really soft and your chest is open you're probably not under attack you're not running for your life or being criticized or judged. So that's telling the limbic brain, the mammalian brain, that you're okay. And now the third in-breath through the nose, squinching the muscles of the face and tightening fists and tightening toes. And just squinch, 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 hold, and then breathe out. The face expression is connected by the ventral vagal which is another set of nerves and that also lets core regions of the limbic structure know and also the right hemisphere of the brain know that you are safer so we'll spend a little while just Settling the mind and relaxing the mind. The way we do that is by keeping an object in awareness. Now, an object can be your body breathing, just noting when your body's breathing in. And know that by the expansion in the chest or belly or the air entering your nose. And know when you're breathing out by feeling the subsiding the contraction, the release, air exiting the nose. Now some people will find it definitely useful to count breaths. And if you do that, count one on the in, two on the out, and then three on the pause. Or you could just think pause. So you can count one in, two out, pause, three in, four out, pause, 
five and six out, pause. The most important part of the breath to focus on is the pause, because that's the time you're most likely to drift away in thought. If your mind does drift away, don't feel frustrated. Don't feel you're doing anything wrong because you're not. It's completely natural for the human mind to drift off when there's not the kind of stimuli that it believes is important. It tends to prioritize sight and thought. And in the absence of both, it will still go for thought. It won't focus on the body. And there's a number of things to bear in mind about that. When we allow the mind to wander, study shows that's when we're least happy and most stressed out. If you give your mind a task, like simply counting breaths, any task feels much better emotionally than allowing your mind to wander, because generally we wander off eventually into stressful thoughts. If you don't want to work with the breath, no worries. Just listen to the sounds that are occurring, but try not to add any story about the sounds, like trying to figure out what's creating the honks, the horns, the traffic, the creaks of the room. Don't add any visual or any explanation or any judgment. Just hear the sounds. When you do drift away with thought, which will happen, just feel good when you become aware that you're not present. And just gently, like you're escorting a child away from an area the child's wandered to that's unsafe, just gently wander your attention, I mean, uh, bring your attention back to the present moment and just acknowledge your efforts and feel good about the fact that you're meditating. Simply practicing meditation has been shown to increase attention and be of benefit to memory structures of the brain. Finally, if you like, another tool you could use is just visualize a static image like a candle. And just repeat a very comfortable, comfortable soothing line like, may I be happy, may I feel safe, May I live with ease. May all beings feel happy, safe, and live with ease. Or any other words that feel soothing, but don't think about the words, just repeat one phrase or two phrases. So we'll sit a little while in silence.
So at this point, I'd invite you to allow the object you've been holding in attention, awareness, just to be released. And if you think of your mind as a, sta <coughs> as a stage, bring to the front of the stage an image that you conjure in your mind of an event that you're either dreading or don't look forward to attend or an event in the past that you attended that was disappointing. If you're not a visual person, you could just use the description of the experience, but it's better if you can use the image itself, if at all possible. See if you can visualize an event that is in some way a gathering or even a conversation with somebody that you're not looking forward to. A conversation that might be conflictual, where there might be hurt feelings, where you're not expecting to be heard. Conversation with a boss, co-worker, roommate, family member, friend. So a gathering or a conversation. So hold it in mind. And what I'd like you to do is while you hold that in your mind, I'd like you to systematically go through your body and just relax the muscles that you can. If your body feels safe, then you won't become defensive or fall into older coping strategies. 
So visualize this conversation and just breathe out really long while you hold the person's image or the event image in your mind. Open up your chest by pulling back the shoulders, softening the belly, relaxing the muscles in the face. Go into a confident, relaxed, assured, safe body. If you can practice this when you're actually in a conflictual conversation or event where you feel poorly treated rather than falling back into older patterns of behavior, if your body's relaxed, then it becomes very possible to act and respond in different ways. I'd also like you to now visualize all the people in in your life who you can talk to now. If there's anybody that you can talk to or share the experience with, a group of friends if possible, visualize the people who you could go to and talk about any experience that you have. Show your mind that you will not stay stuck in the emotional experience, that you can find support. Visualize a place you could go to that's safe. If your apartment or a friend's or there's some place in your life you associate with security, warmth, comfort, shelter, just visualize that place. And finally, visualize a time in your life where you spoke up for yourself, where you set boundaries, you stated your needs, you didn't disappear, become invisible, you didn't shut down, you didn't let unfairness or injustice or poor treatment Go unaddressed. Show yourself that you're not as vulnerable as the inner child who's still there believes you are. We all have an inner child, a set of timeless feelings that date back to childhood that are very much present in the brain's right hemisphere. And we have to kindly, gently show that inner child that we are now not as vulnerable as we were.
What resources do we have today? So, in a moment, I'm going to bring the meditation to a close by ringing a small bell, bowl. I ask that when you hear the sound, before you look around the room, take a moment just to look at the floor or the ground in front of you and integrate sight into your awareness. But what that means is essentially taking the qualities of light and color, but keep awareness of your body, your breathing, how you feel internally, and integrate the two. In much of our lives, we don't pay attention to the body, the breath, feelings, and in such that way, we don't listen to our emotional signals being sent by the right brain. And when we do that, we begin to starve the parts of ourselves that are so important in expressing such core needs. In fact, the emotional mind is the most important, in many ways, part of our experience. 